Good afternoon and uh, a very sunny welcome to all of you. So, I like to see the lovely lady at the back who has the same jumper on as me. Yes, good taste, good taste. I thought I'd wear my new jumper and she's got one on as well, so that's very nice. So, very warm welcome to everyone. And uh, this afternoon's topic is being authentic, being real. And um, I don't know about you, but that's been kind of something I've wanted to be all my life, is to be real and to be authentic. So maybe that's why you're all here this afternoon. So um, the Brahma Kumaris is hosting this afternoon's program. I think all of you know the Brahma Kumaris. I think everyone has been to something before, so we won't need to introduce the Brahma Kumaris. But I can introduce Neville. Neville is a dear friend of mine. I've known Neville for quite a few years. And uh, Neville has just come back from a tour of uh, the Philippines and and Malaysia, Malaysia and the Philippines. So quite a whirlwind tour. He was doing lots of talks and seminars and meeting lots of very lovely and interesting people. So we're very lucky to have him. Neville used to work for the Sunday Times as the science correspondent. And um, I mean, that's quite an interesting story in itself to see how he moved from science to spirituality. And actually, it's our good fortune he did because now he can talk about balancing the two from an authoritative place on both of those subjects. So Neville is a writer and he's written quite a few books, a few of them we have brought this afternoon. So Neville is a resident now in our global retreat centre, which is just outside of Oxford, which is a 17th century palace. And I think it has something like 70 bedrooms. It's quite a large house. And uh, maybe some of you have even stayed there on a weekend residential retreat. It's, if you can, it's a very lovely place to go and stay. Anyway, Neville stays there as part of the in-house staff as well. So he helps with all sorts of things, from washing up the dishes to doing a bit of hoovering. I've seen him do a little hoovering to uh, inspecting the grounds. So he's very lucky to live there, and we're very lucky to have him this afternoon. So Neville, let's welcome you to the stage to share with us your thoughts on being authentic and being real. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. It's nice to have this chance to share on this topic. And uh, although I was given this topic by Linda um, when she was inviting me to come and share some thoughts with you, I consider it a very um, realistic one for myself. Um, I would say Linda said that she'd been concerned to be authentic all her life. I'm not sure that I had that understanding in the earlier part of my life, but about halfway through my career, um, I sort of made quite a big change of direction. And uh, so for at least the last three decades, I really have been on a journey to become more authentic and more real. And uh, so I've got some things that I can share about it. And um, I think um, there are some subtleties to it because um, it's not just a question of uh, of being real in the sense of being true to who you are at this moment, but 
also to understanding that there might be, and almost certainly is, a gap or a difference between who you are at the moment and who you are in a deeper sense. And so the aspect of being real and authentic covers both aspects. Who you are right now, so that you understand yourself, but also who you are potentially, um, and in a deeper sense, who you are anyway, um, as, um, as a being of great beauty, which every one of us is, even though it doesn't always seem like it. And the, how that gap has emerged and how we can close that gap is, is all, is the beauty of the, the spiritual journey and spiritual understanding. Many people either underrate themselves, not realizing how beautiful each human spirit is, or overrate themselves and puff themselves up with what they do, uh, or what they look like, or how much they own, but um, uh, feel along with that puffed up nature some inner insecurity, because when you're defining yourself with things outside of you, it makes you vulnerable, because everything outside of you is here today and gone tomorrow. But there is this deeper aspect of the self, which I didn't know about um, in the earlier part of my life, but which I've been spending this last few decades emerging, this deeper aspect of the self, which is when you kind of really get that, and it does take some time for most of us, when you really get that, there's a very deep sense of security, a deep sense of inner peace. And with that, a, an ability to be at peace with others in such a way that you're able to see them in a higher light as well. Because one of the things that I've noticed is that when there is some insecurity arising from it's missing, you know, in your sense of self, then that's when we've a tendency to be judgmental in our attitudes towards others. It's quite a widespread habit to be having a kind of commentary going on in your head about how this person, oh, you know, this or David Cameron's that, or, you know, all of these things. And um, it's, it's okay, of course, we need discrimination about the reality of things out there, but, but it can also be a kind of... Um, a bad habit that we indulge in uh, that um, prevents us from really looking within and seeing how we can increase our own authenticity and our own reality. So, yeah, I was, um, I think in, in, um, in my teenage years, I tried to I tried to understand, I became a bit more thoughtful. I was a fairly conventional boy, I feel, just enjoyed, you know, like going out with friends, exploring nature a bit. I was lucky enough to grow to grow up in semi-country. And um, I, I, in a way, I remind myself of the Just William in Just William stories. Do you, any of you remember those? Lovely stories about and William kind of has his own rather limited outlook on things. Um, and I feel as if... I had an early childhood that was rather like that, just my own little world with my friends. But then in my teens, I tried to understand things a bit more. 
and um, asked some questions of our local vicar. I remember I couldn't make much sense of of um, of the, uh, the the divine as I was told that it existed, but I didn't kind of get a feel for it. And uh, so I decided to make, I think in a sense, I decided to make science my hope for the future. That's how I came into science journalism, really. I entered newspaper world. I got married quite young. Uh, that also gave me some kind of sense of a place in the world and um, put a lot into my career in newspapers. Really enjoyed the deadlines, you know, the deadlines and the headlines. It's kind of exciting and and uh, it motivated me where I feel as if in many ways in my late teens I, I lacked motivation. And um, that worked okay for a while. Um, but it was all, as, as the flyer today was talking about, defining yourself through externals, and it was really all like that. And the inner being was um, definitely not getting much attention. I didn't even know such a thing existed. And then um, about halfway through my career, um, and I was working as a medical correspondent, medical and science correspondent at this time, um, I was learning through my work about mind-body connections and things like that, and how just fixing things with pills or operations, that could be a helping hand, definitely, but if the deeper dynamics of lying behind our illnesses, some of them, uh, like chronic illnesses, if the if the connection with our thoughts and feelings wasn't taken into account, then the illness would probably come back again, despite the pill or the surgery or whatever. And uh, so I became very interested in that, and that was started to teach me about the importance of the mind and how our thoughts are so powerful, so powerful, very unacknowledged. This ba the mind is like the basis of our living. It's really not widely acknowledged. It's astonishing just how deep this is. And it's not just a simple matter either. Like, probably we all would all recognize that if you suddenly see something that makes you angry, you know, your heart beats, you probably get a surge of adrenaline, you know, all of that. We know about the mind-body connection in that, that obvious way. But it works in a, a way that is goes beyond the mind-body connection to the mind-world connection. You're, the world that you experience depends on the kind of thoughts that you're habitually having. This is quite an amazing thing. There's a nice... Um, I came across a very nice book a little while back by Marianne Williamson called A Return to Love. I don't know if ever, any of you read it. I think it came out about 20 years back. And um, she has this lovely expression that thought is cause, experience is effect. Thought, which by which she means thought stroke feeling, so what's happening in your mind is cause. Experience, which is what's happening in your brain and your body and your world, is effect. If you're not happy with the effects in your life, you have to change the nature of your thinking. And it's really very deeply true. It really is. And it kind of puts you back in the driving seat, if you catch this, that instead of considering that the things that you're experiencing in life are a bad deal from God or, you know, from your parents or they're just unlucky or it was that horrible boss, instead of blaming the external circumstances, it starts to connect you to this idea that 
maybe my world really is emerging in the way that it is because of the habitual state of mind that I carry. And if that's true, then maybe I can change my state of mind and that that will change my world. And I've seen that this really does work. It really is true. But you have to catch it at quite a deep level. She goes, Marian Williamson goes on to say that um, if there is love in your mind, that produces love in your life. And if there's fear in your mind, that produces fear in your life. It's like a, a more modern version of it is called the law of attraction. There was this video came out called The Secret. Um, but it is actually a very deep thing to do with the way the world works, that mind is, in a sense, the master. And then the material world is secondary to what happens in mind. I'll say a bit more about that later because that's some frontier science that excites me a lot. Might, might not you, but I'll touch on it. Uh, but it, as a principle, to understand that the life that you're experiencing is a consequence of what you are allowing to happen habitually in your mind, that's a really useful thing to catch hold of. And that was something I didn't realize until I started on a more reflective path in my, I was 37, I think, when I, when I began studying with the Brahma Kumaris. I came across them through my work, through um, doctors who were using meditation as a therapeutic uh, tool, and um, I liked very much the feeling uh, that I got from the brothers and sisters who were practicing uh, soul awareness, even though the idea of the soul didn't really have a place in my head because I had such a materialistic outlook from my science worshipping, if you like. And um, But yet, nevertheless, I couldn't get away from this beautiful feeling that came from from these regular meditation practitioners, especially the elderly ones who'd come from India to share the ideas, who'd done it for many decades. They had such a beautiful vibration that even if you didn't understand it, you couldn't help but be affected by it. You know, you'd come into their presence and all your all your worries would melt away. Their mind was so strong. And now understand it's not just... The mind is something that is actually sort of sits behind the brain and the body. You could probably think of it as sitting between the soul, which is like the, the deeper divine entity, and the brain and the body, which is the material side. So the mind sits in between. The, um, when, um, when you experience from another person a, a very uh, profound, powerful consciousness, it isn't just coming from the soul or the mind, it's actually coming through the brain and the body as well. There's a continuum to all of this. And so, with some people, you will feel that there is a strong vibration. It might be a negative one. Uh, you'll be aware that they're very needy. Or it may be a very positive one, and you'll feel very relaxed in their company instead of tense, where the somebody's very needy, it tends to make other people a little nervous of them. But when there is that inner security, then people feel comfortable and feel drawn to others. This actually also has has to do with authenticity, because sometimes a person might be saying one thing, but actually emitting a different kind of vibration. You know, they might be saying warm words, but 
there might not be the same warmth in their heart. And that was also something that I felt that a kind of gap had opened out in myself at that time when I was first learning about meditation practice, that I wanted to be a decent person. I didn't want to be egotistical and and critical and judgmental. But um, So I tried to be a nice person, but... And people would say, oh, yeah, Nev's very kind. But I would feel that I wasn't, because I knew what was happening inside, and it wasn't always benevolent by any means. So this was one of the factors that led me to feel I'm not really being authentic, and I'd like to learn more about having a match between what I'd like to be and trying to put out that image of being a decent person and really feeling solidly that that is the case. So that's been the nature of the journey over this last few decades, this last three decades. The, um, to begin with, I was helped just by coming into the company of practiced yogis, because it's like when they have this feeling of, when they're giving out this feeling of confidence and peace and happiness, um, it's as if and you come into their orbit, so to speak. It's as if you receive something. It bypasses your thinking. You just, it's like your heart feels nourished by that vibration. And um, so uh, coming into the gathering of people uh, who are practicing thinking and feeling in these ways that nourish our inner positivity, I would find benefit in that. But the problem was, for quite a number of years, that my head, my thinking, if you like, that was going on in my brain didn't match that feeling of peace and, and joy that I wanted to experience and I would experience from time to time when I was separating from my everyday life, but it wasn't properly integrated. And so this actually produced quite a comic circumstance for a few years, and that was chronicled by my son, Will, in a book that came out couple of years back now i think called the house is full of yogis and um his 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 name is will hodgkinson and um he's now in his mid 40s with children of his own but he he wrote this book um i think because when his dad went spiritual as he calls it which was about halfway through his childhood he was actually quite touched by it the older boy who's about 20 months older, he, he, uh, he, it's almost like he was past worrying about what Nev was up to, you know, he just accepted that some changes happened in the household. But Will, it touched quite deeply. He was only 11, I think, 12 when I started properly. And um, so he describes, you know, the sort of ways whereby I was suddenly trying to bring into the household things outside of me to tell me to tell me that I was spiritual you know like wearing white um speaking softly um putting up some different pictures in the house you know various things like this they're all aimed at trying to persuade myself that I was becoming spiritual but actually that's not authentic those are all external things it's all right because um because it was a sign of wanting to be 
different from how that kind of very materialistic life that I had been leading, but it wasn't authentic. And his book is absolutely hilarious. I cried with laughter reading it all the way through. He was the last person he dared show, show it to me. He, he showed it to me in when it was a proof copy, because he was afraid that I'd be, you know, I'd argue with some of it. And some of the facts aren't correct, but that doesn't matter. The feeling of it is absolutely how it was. And it is extremely funny, because it's like, it's like, um, it's, it's tailor-made for humor, because here's somebody who has pursued life in one way, suddenly says, oh, no, no, that's not, not the right way, you know, let's all go this way, and then he's falling flat on his face again and again as he tries to do it. You know, it's actually very funny. And the, the humor sort of lanced a boil inside me, really, that, that was one of the things that's led me to feel of, of, very deep sense of peace with all of this now. Uh, when that book came out, um, the laughter that I experienced and the kindness of the book as well, and Will spoke very kindly in a few interviews and things like this, it just made me feel, I think in the past I'd felt, even though I didn't feel as if I had any choice in what I was doing when I, when I was suddenly trying to embrace this uh, deeper dimension of myself, but nevertheless... I did did regret that uh, it created some upheaval in the home, and uh, reading Will's account of it just really brought me back to a peaceful state about that. Because he's also both boys, Tom, his older brother too. They're both very appreciative, actually, of the fact that they were introduced to some of this idea that that our lives should be more than just those external shows, you know. Um, which was the way that both I and my wife were living in the in the earlier part of their childhood, and then suddenly, you know, this this effort to be more real, more authentic in in a spiritual sense. And although neither of them has felt inclined to take up a spiritual lifestyle as such, but I see how both of them have built some of this understanding into their lives, into the way they conduct their relationships, and in the and in the kind of ways that they've done their work. When I was very much a sort of corporate journalist, um, partly because I didn't have the talent to be any more than that, but, you know, if you kind of go into newspapers, work hard, climb the, the ladder of the... I, I never went into the executive side, but I, I did well as a reporter. And um, so I, I got some brownie points through that. But... Um, but that first part of my career where I was pursuing things in in the, that needy way, you know, of needing to be thought well of, etc., very stress, very stress-filled, and um, actually so much less effective than in the second half of the career when I was doing things much more from a sense of, well, I, I know much more now who I am, like a, I am a spiritual being, and I have certain qualities that are innate to all of us. And so I don't have to prove myself externally in the same way. When you start making that shift, you move from a very stress-filled life to one that becomes much more secure and more successful because you don't have that neediness in your relationship with others. You know, gradually you become more giving 
instead of needing to prove yourself all the time, which is uncomfortable for other people. You know, they sense it if you're, if you're ego-driven or if you're very dependent. So, um, so there was that success in the second half of the career where I felt much more at home with what I was doing and, and more, more real because of, because of, um, doing things for a giving motive rather than a needy motive. Well, I think, although it's part of our reality that we do have needs, of course, but, but I think that the sense of life being difficult and of life involving conflicts and stresses, I think that is much more intensely experienced when, when there is this gap between how we think we have to behave out there and how we are inside as, as uh, really as as divine beings i'll say a bit more about that um what it means to be a divine being um the bk's teach that um all of us come from a source which is outside this world that this world of space time which Einstein showed very clearly is a very delineated world. It's not what we thought it was. There is no absolute time. There is no absolute space. But there is this kind of world of space-time that is like a projection that we live in. Like It's a bit like being in a cinema, except it's 3D, and we're active participants in it, whereas in a cinema you just sit and watch. But actually, the, the parallel with the cinema is not so far-fetched because physicists now tell us that actually it's as if this whole story, this play that we're in, as if it all exists in some kind of projection room, like a, like a DVD. The whole lot exists. There, this, is all, this is regular um, physics um, in the light of both relativity theory and quantum theory, that other revolutionary branch of physics, which I'll say a few words about. The, um, this, this picture um, that we're in a, we're in a, a play, but that we're like actors, and that the real us is the actor and not the part. That's something that the Brahma Kumaris drove home to me very strongly. And it wasn't anything I'd been familiar with previously from my own rather kind of occasional visits to church. Um, I didn't, didn't get that idea so clearly, although I was very drawn by the Christian teachings for how we should live in terms of love and goodness. But, but this, this understanding that we are those beings of spirit who, who have come, come from a home that is like beyond space-time. So there is that eternal aspect to us that is... And in that original condition, before we're here getting caught up in our parts, we are very, very loving and pure. Everybody, every soul, everyone is loving and joyful and and blissful, actually, um, and peaceful when we are in that space beyond. And you, you know, you've probably you've come across some of these accounts written by people who've had the near-death experience, and they, they witness to it very commonly. People die, actually. It's not 
they call it the near-death experience because they come back, but actually they die clinically. They are dead. There's no breathing. There's no blood circulating. There's no electrical activity in the brain. They may be gone for minutes in the states where they've got some techniques of cooling bodies. Sometimes they're gone for hours while they're repairing a burst aorta or something like that, and then they bring them back. Many thousands of these stories now, thanks to advances in resuscitation techniques. And um, in about a, a big series uh, in Holland showed that in about a fifth of these so-called NDEs, the person experiences, um, in about a fifth of cases where people have died and come back, they remember this near-death experience. And it has a very common pattern to it. To begin with, here's the corpse, the person who's died, but the surgeons are still desperately trying to restart the heart, let's say. But the, the, the consciousness of the person is above. They see the surgeons working away on the body. They, they're observing this, and they're thinking, that's strange. You know, they're, they're all so worried, but the, the person, the consciousness, the soul, is feeling a sense of freedom. There's no pain. But then sometimes the, these are the main aspects of this near-death experience. Sometimes what they call a life review and if there's been some unfinished business, something with a person, for example, it might come to mind, oh, oh I never realized how much that hurt someone when I said that, you know. There was something that might have been years back, but it's something that comes back to mind. Just some unfinished business like that. Not always, but sometimes. And then they kind of the consciousness goes further and further away from the from the material. And they speak of going through this tunnel into a realm of light. Um, they experience it as light. They, they repeatedly speak of feeling as if they're a part of that whole, but as if they are that whole as well. So they're themselves still, and yet they feel as if they're absolutely connected to the whole. And this is what the scientists who are studying this call it non-local space. It's a, it's a term that really essentially is saying that it's outside space-time, the space-time of the theatre of life. But it's very, very commonly experienced. And when people go into that realm, they feel this reality. They feel that love is really the real reality about life. They feel that a deep peace and joy is the reality of life. And that and when they come back, um, they often their life is transformed. They refuse to live in the stress-filled way that had caused them to have that premature heart attack or whatever it was that might have caused them to leave the body for that, that while. They refuse. They commonly change. Pim van Lommel, a Dutch cardiologist, did a 10-year study of this, and he found that involving five hospitals in Holland and several years of gathering these stories, and he found that they nearly all change their lives quite dramatically after tasting this reality, this real authentic self there beyond this material realm. And there are numerous other accounts of people who haven't actually died, but whose brain has been knocked out for a while. And they also have described these same things as uh, Dr. Eben Alexander. You might have come across, there was a lot of publicity surrounding his book called Heaven is Real. 
and um, he is a neurosurgeon, hardline, materialist-minded. He had an infection, a, viral, um, a bacterial infection of his frontal cortex, which put him in a coma for over a week, and they thought they'd lost him. But when the antibiotics uh, came into effect, and he came back, and he just wanted to write, and he's now dedicating his life to telling people, we, we, love is everything. This is his message. It's central. You can look him up on the internet. It's beautiful. E-B-E-N Alexander, Dr. Eben Alexander, Heaven is Real, and he is kind of dedicating his life to these teachings to travel across the world and tell people about this reality of this inner beauty to whom we all are. Another account, Anita Mojani, um, Hong Kong-based lady. She wrote a book called Dying to Be Me. And in her case, she had a cancer that she fought for four years. It was a lymphoma, and it was getting more and more spread in her body till eventually it put her in a coma too. And the doctors were saying, you know, she had hours to live. And actually, she probably died. She was in a coma. She didn't die technically, but she left the body. And um, when she had gone off into this same realm as with the near-death experience, and often when people are there they describe how even though they even though they feel this individuality still but they feel that wherever they they're kind of a conscious entity they're not a material entity and this is actually the deepest truth about us that we're not material beings we're we're beings of consciousness not consciousness in the everyday sense, although that's important, but there's this deep consciousness. You can hit me on the head with a hammer and I'll be unconscious, but that doesn't mean that I'm finished in terms of this deeper consciousness. They don't have a better word for it, but there's a continuity to who you are, which you still experience even when your brain isn't working. And in fact, it's experienced more when your brain isn't working. This is one of the fascinating things that's emerging. Anita Mojani, dying to be me, she she uh, went off uh, into this coma. She met her father, long, long deceased. He told her, actually, you're going to have to return. Uh, you've more to do. Um, she felt this incredible sense of truth, of reality, of what life really is about, that we are this beautiful spirit, all of us. Um, and she... It's, it's sort of the realization did something for her. At first, she was reluctant to go back because her body was in such a terrible state, riddled with, with cancer. But she returned. She recovered consciousness to the amazement of her doctors. And in six weeks, she left hospital completely cured. It, uh, uh, four years of the cancer eating her up. She had lymph glands the size of lemons, you know, and, and it, in six weeks it had all cleared and she's now also touring the world telling people about the reality of, of who we really are. We are these beings of love, these beings of spirit and the, the, the material world is like a, a playground where actually in order to be able to manage these lives we have a restricted consciousness. It's not that, it's not that um, when we die, our consciousness finishes. One of the people in Pim Van Lommel's book says very 
memorably, um, I realized that death is just a big, nasty, bad lie. You know, that, that was so clear to them. They're, here was their body down here, but they're out there. They're completely conscious. This is the common common thread with all of it. So, but but the, the idea is growing now that the the brain is really, as much as it is giving you information about how to handle this world that you're in, because you're an actor on the stage, you have to play your part, but as much as it's doing that, it's also a filter, because you imagine that this huge play here put on here in space-time by the mind of nature, which is how the scientists are starting to understand it, there's a fantastic amount of information needed to put this on, even just, you know, the information holding my finger in place. Trillions of cells in my body, something like 75 trillion cells. They're held in place by information. They're not, it's, not a, it's not magic. There's, there's a field effect that makes everything work. And that's just me. The chairs, the table, the room. This is just this room. Brighton, you know, England, the world. Imagine the information that is holding this in place. It is fantastic. They say, the pioneers in this new paradigm say it's like some quantum supercomputer that is that holds all the information of what is happening here in this material world and unfolds it moment by moment, just like a DVD unfolds a movie for us. But and we think it's marvelous that we can put all that information onto a little disc, but that's, that, that is nothing compared with what nature is, can and does do. So this is the kind of um, realizations that these people have, and Anita Mojani is, is changed like that. Another one is, um, and mostly these scientists um, who are getting this wake-up call, um, Jill Bolte-Taylor, a brain scientist in the States, she had a stroke, gradually shut down her left hemisphere. And it was very upsetting for her for a while until then, as she kind of lost her left, left hemispheric function completely, and the left hemisphere is the more rational brain center, um, she m also moved into this sense of, of, of being much more than her everyday consciousness, that, that she was connected to this enormously powerful mind of nature that is putting on this show for us. And again, the sense of love and joy that came with that. This is revolutionary stuff. You're not hearing much about it at the moment because it's so contrary to the materialistic scientific worldview. But some very leading scientists are, are urging us to study these things. So this, I feel, is really important for us to know because it for me it's been important because it meant that the things that I was learning through the spiritual university which were telling me that I'm a soul that that means that I'm an eternal being uh, like a conscious agent that may not only have played this part as a you know an actor on the stage but I might have had many incarnations prior to this one and also that also in the spiritual world, that there is this sense that there's a source, a seed of what is highest in us, that holds like the blueprint of what, of what is highest in us. And that to recover our own true authenticity, our true reality, our real reality, if you like, not the reality of 
well, you know, it's a, it's a reality that I'm limited, that I sometimes get upset, it's a reality that I get depressed or I get overexcited. These are aspects of reality, and it's important to acknowledge them and face them, but this deeper reality that really, originally, and eternally, in this, in that absolute sense, all of us are like the offspring of that supreme source, that we have the same qualities in us potentially and actually, but sometimes covered over as that highest one has, that is an amazing insight. And and now that's meaningful for me because somehow my materialistic brain conditioning from all my work as a science correspondent blocked that reality for me. But now that I find that science is telling me a story that is so much more integratable with the spiritual understanding, it's fallen into place for me. And that's given much more strength to my spiritual journey. You need you need um you need both. You need you have to work through some of the the gunge, if you like, that's inside us, because that is part of our reality. We've had painful, tragic sometimes experiences, tough times, especially in today's world, you know, people are amazing how brave they are carrying on with what they with the way they, they do. But actually we all mostly many face a lot of severe challenges of heartbreak and lost hopes and people behaving badly with us and sometimes us behaving badly with others. It's all there. So it's important as part of being real to be facing up to that. But my experience is that you're better able to face the reality of your defects when you understand that underneath you're really these beautiful beings. You really are. That the the defects are not not as deeply real as your goodness, and that's you know that's borne out by this, this this frontier science as well as by classical spiritual teachings about who we are and where we come from. So I f- find this a very very beautiful time in the world where there is a lot of sorrow because there's a lot of darkness in the sense that these deeper truths have been widely um, neglected at the very least, sometimes really forgotten, as in my case. But, you know, gradually as this light returns and more and more of these stories are emerging to tell us what's really going on, and the, the frontier scientists are really smashing materialism, they're saying that the story that everything started just through some sort of blind beginning of the Big Bang and just chance events over billions of years that you got, you know, eventually you got galaxies and stars and planets and then more millions of years and you got life and it crawled out of the primeval soup and just, just selfish genes eventually produced a fingernail, let alone a human being, you know, it's, I mean, that's the story that I used to subscribe to, but the consciousness-based paradigm says that's completely wrong, completely wrong. It's absolutely unscientific. It doesn't support any of this understanding about the primacy of consciousness that is emerging in many different fields. So science is in for a revolution, I can tell you. It really is. How long it will take before that actually comes, I'm not sure, but it is already pushing through. They call it post-materialist science, and um, it's going to help us all a lot. 
Okay, I think that's what I'll do for putting something on the table. And I believe um, the next step is to move into a discussion phase, right, Linda? So that gives some time and space for everyone to go into little groups and discuss and come up with some very deep questions. We do come up with deep questions in this place down here. So, so organize yourselves in groups, not too big groups, because there's not that many here. So maybe three or four maximum. And it's nice to be with someone you don't know because then you can mix with others and meet new friends. And each group, as you know, we usually get you to come up with one specific question, one question which you have to write down yourselves and agree to. But if you can write it down so that it's understandable so that I can read it back to Neville. So we give you about 15, 20 minutes to do that. So... So now this is always the, the, this is the best part, I think. Because I, I think this is quite a testing, uh, it's quite a testing situation. I haven't ever sat on this chair myself, but I think uh, our speakers so far have done admirably in answering the questions. So far. Are we ready? Your answers are not there, Neville. <laughs> oh, I haven't answered the question yet. Be. Just seeing what ground I covered. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So this one is, um, apart from meditation, how else can we tap into our inner peace and love more in our everyday lives? Right. Simple question to start with. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, it, definitely, some people live without meditation, but with virtue. And really, virtue means like living in a true way, being true to the deeper self. That's what virtue is. And um, so I see meditation as a corrective rather than as a um, something that is for everybody. Some people really do not need to meditate because they are so virtuous. Just somehow they've their upbringing, you might say it's their karma, whatever the reason, they live with lightness and with love and they don't have that same need to charge the battery of their well-being, which is what meditation does. Meditation charges the battery of the well-being when it's, when it's run flat or when it's running low. So, um, so some people don't need to meditate, they just have that virtue there anyway. Others find that they do nourish themselves in that way that that means that the battery is well charged and therefore they can live in that virtuous way. They do it through the arts, you know, like um, certain types of classical forms of the arts, certain music, certain um, true 
arts, like you know Shakespeare's plays, if you really catch them, the wisdom in them is such as to nourish the spirit. Um, the classical poets like Shelley and Keats, you know, they, the wisdom that they share in those poems, if you kind of live that and understand it, that also nourishes your spirit in ways that allow you to, to um, live well. So there are a variety of ways, and I think the great faith traditions took people in this direction too, when they taught about, they, they have in common living in ways that mean they help to protect you if you follow their kind of the the um, instructions of the great faith founders like Jesus and Muhammad and Abraham and Buddha. They teach you to live in ways where you're living lightly so that you don't get too engaged by what's out here. Because it's when you get over-engaged in out here that you're consciousness kind of becomes locked into that and then when it doesn't do what you want it to do or it disappears or it threatens threatened you have a threatened loss you hurt and when you hurt you can't be virtuous actually if you're in a st- it's like a wound inside you so you have to heal that that's one of the things so there are the great faith traditions were also about reconnecting religion actually means to re retie like in ligament same root as in ligament religio meaning i retie it's very similar meaning to yoga which is like the yoke that combines the oxen with the plow you know to bring together and that's what allows you to become authentic so i think all of these things can play their part the the thing is that you have to be careful to keep them alive. You have to understand them deeply and not let them, and including meditation, not let them become just a, a kind of comforting routine. It has to be more than that. You could lead a, a, a meditative life where you were kind of sitting quietly for spells, um, but if you weren't, if you were just doing it in a sense of routine and not really, not really living to the, the, and getting the juice that comes from this connection with the deeper truth, then it would be, it wouldn't do you much good. But, and it's the same with prayer, uh, as traditionally taught. You know, if you're in a space where you're just longing for something, I don't think that has the same power as prayer that is a kind of meditation. I remember hearing a a Greek Orthodox bishop speak about prayer in their tradition, and it, it was the first time I'd heard how prayer could be something where you're not asking for something. I used to think of prayer as, you know, like, help me get through my GCSEs or something like that. But it's not asking, but it's more a question of relationship with the divine. And anything that helps you connect so that you have the sense of the reality of of your higher self and that source of beauty, that works. That's what works. So it's not just meditation, but meditation is a lovely method because it's a discipline. It means that you give time to it morning and night. You set aside certain times where you review yourself, you do a bit of cleaning, you know, of stuff that's got in your consciousness that gets in the way of you and the divine. Then you have a good night's sleep, and then you set your mind with some elevated thoughts at the beginning of the day. It's like managing your mind. And anything and any other things that help you to do that will also work. Okay.
So this question says, sometimes I am unable to stay in my higher self in response to another person's negative behavior. Right. So if yep. you can answer that one, and I've got two little ones that follow. So meaning the question would be, how can I, or how should I regard that, or how can I be stronger? Is it like that? Okay. So how and uh, so okay. So these two are connected then. So how, when, and how is it useful to withdraw? Ah. And when and how is it useful to engage? Sorry, it's mine. Oh, that's mistake. a good, that's a very good question. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, it's that's a that is a tricky one, and it really depends on the circumstances. Um, I think it's useful to remember what psychiatrists say when they're treating alcoholism, a very common problem. And people have it to different degrees. You know, some the psychiatrists, if the person's got a bit of a drink problem, he'll say, look, if you just keep it to a couple of glasses of wine a week, something like that, you you can manage that. There'll be a little enhancement for your life. It's part of your lifestyle. That's okay. But you mustn't let it go beyond that or it's going to, the problem will really take a hold of you. But someone else where the alcoholism is more deep-rooted, they'll say you must not touch drink again because that person, they just have one little taste of the effect of the alcohol and it sweeps them off onto a drinking binge and they're lost again and they're, you know, they're, they're, the, the addiction is has taken a terrible hold on them again. So people differ. So some circumstances you may be strong enough to gather the... It, it, it may not succeed at first. might be someone being, a, 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 let's say, a boss or a work colleague is being very negative with you. If you can... The great beauty of this concept of charging your battery of your well-being through meditative practice is that it does increase your resilience in the face of other people's negativity. It's a bit like having a force field. You know, I used to enjoy science fiction movies with my sons, and when they traveled to some distant planet and there were aliens there, they would put a force field up around their camp, you know, and as long as the force field remained in place, the aliens couldn't get at them. But if it came down for some reason, because the battery ran out, then they'd be overrun. And it's a little bit like that, that and the force, the force is not a force in an electrical sense or force in a forcible sense it's actually the force of love when you have that very strong connection with your inner being um, and you work to strengthen it then the, the stronger that force is it's like a an outward flow so that someone else's negativity is like water off a duck's back it won't it doesn't affect you but of course you know there are times when certain individuals really do press our buttons. And if you're finding repeatedly that you really can't cope with it, then you might have to withdraw from that circumstance. You might have to, if it's in a workplace and you've got a, a colleague who is just unbearable to you, yes, you do your best to to master that circumstance. If you can, you'll learn a lot through it. But if you can't, it might be better to move. You know, sometimes people... 
are not flourishing in one workplace, things haven't gone well for them, the chemistry just isn't working right and there's negativity towards them, they move to another office and suddenly they're flourishing. So it's not to be stubborn about thinking that you must always stay in one place, but but sometimes it's good to stick with situations and, and see them through. I think especially in personal relationships, if you can... Sometimes I, I'm a, definitely a believer that sometimes it's better to break. But sometimes if you can stay with something that is difficult, but use it to strengthen you. So on a regular basis, you're thinking, well, I, I let them get to me again, but I don't have to let that happen. If you know, Once you've learned the method for, for charging yourself, you can continue to increase in strength and you might master that circumstance. But that method is takes some learning. You know, it doesn't come just with a dabble. Uh, if you really need extra, a lot of extra power to overcome a very difficult situation, then it takes quite a bit of discipline, you know, of regular practice of, of uplift, self-upliftment, of, of um, thoughts and feelings related to truth, but ones which really really give you that inner strength so that eventually the negativity of the other one it just doesn't touch you. It, it, it's possible, but sometimes you might have to move away. So this question's connected with your answer, um, so you can go a little deeper. To remain authentic, should I not react at all to a negative event? By not reacting, am I being passive and not resolving an issue? Mm, that's also so interesting. This is really, really, you know, when you get a chance for people to question, it becomes so, so practical and useful. Yeah. Um, the first thought that's coming to mind is that my predisposition, as I sort of indicated earlier, was to paper over my my own negativities in the hope that in trying to be a decent person but not really managing so papering something over is obviously not an answer and suppression is not an answer but just being open about your negativity isn't an answer either you somehow have to find a way of steering between these two you need a sort of balance. Um, sometimes we talk about different powers that come from Raja Yoga. One one of the powers is the power to to tolerate, um, meaning that not that you're putting up with something, but that you are really able to you know, increasingly not let it uh, affect you adversely. But you have to balance that with the power to face. And the power to face is was implied by the question that there are times when it's better to be able to say to a person, a boss, a, a, a relative, whatever, your behavior in this regard is really having this impact on me and I, I don't like that and I, I'd like to ask you to reconsider. You know, but to be able to do that my experience has been that I kind of fell back on papering things over because I lacked authentic power for a long time. You know, I wanted to be a decent person. I want—I I was a people pleaser, if you like. Um, and um, but that isn't—that's not an adequate thing uh, when it doesn't have power behind it. 
because it leads to suppression of your feelings and eventually it might all burst out in an explosion of anger or something like that, which happened occasionally for me, which was a big shock to some of my friends and, and to me. Um, but as time's gone on, what you become the power to face, that is to speak your mind, becomes much greater when it's not got a load of feeling behind it. You know, if there's a load of suppressed anger, then you'll tend not to speak out openly because you're afraid of the damage you might do. But if you can, if you can be more in touch with your feelings all the time and, and just kind of not have some build-up of anger or other negativity inside you, but just through your, through drawing on this current of benevolence that comes from the connection your higher self and the and the the source as you keep that current with you you become much better able to when someone says something negative something unpleasant as you're perceiving it say well you know i i really i really don't accept that and to say why and have it out with them you know in a way that is not nasty but just deals with it, which is much preferable than either suppression or some explosion of irritation. Does that answer the question? Well, they will tell you if it hasn't. <laughs> but uh, there's another one that's connected with that, okay. so this might take you a little deeper. Right. So this question says, how can we influence change in a positive way? So it's connected with what you were just speaking about. Yes. But, but also, I think this uh, implicit in a question like that is the sense of the collective as well. You know, not just me and another, but uh, but the, there are families, there are communities, and there's the world, which is a really, really interesting thing. There is, there are various wise stories in this territory. You know, like some boy who was seen throwing stranded starfish back in the water and there were thousands of them stranded and someone says to him what are you doing you know you're wasting your time there's thousands dying and he says yeah but the ones that i'm throwing are living and um, you know that he was doing what he could so in the same way even if it might seem as if there's overwhelming wrong-headedness at times in our society in our world Nevertheless, every drop of truth that you are able to contribute is valuable because ultimately truth will be restored. That is the reality. Whereas when you choose to go along with the decline that there has been, I would say um, a kind of slow movement more and more to this sort of externalized way of living, of materialism, and less and less awareness of the inner being, um, when you go along with that and you pay the price of losing your own truth to different degrees, you know, you, you, you give more attention to acquiring more um, and to maybe to putting other people down sometimes so as to keep yourself up. But actually, as you do that, you're losing all the time. And so if you can start taking it in the other direction and working to try to ensure that you change your priorities so that instead of focusing on short-term gains out there, you're focusing on the longer-term issue of your 
your ability to live by your truth with real authenticity, making that your aim in life, not only does that free you from a lot of stress, because when you live in that out external way, you're very vulnerable, but it brings happiness. You know, as you feel more and more that you're able to be yourself, because you're, you're understanding, you're not losing contact with that higher self, and you're, you're more and more able to contribute from that higher self to others. And in time, I think, you don't even have to think about changing the world yourself. There is a saying that the Brahma Kumaris have, when we change, the world changes. And I think that's absolutely true, that there will be, uh, even when just one circumstance and I manage to be positive and proactive rather than negative and reactive with some nasty scene, one circumstance where I do that, and the reverberations of that can be enormous. Many people can take benefit from that, those directly involved in the circumstance, but then others might see that example and they might kind of get the idea of empowering themselves. So, you know, there's like a one pebble of self-empowerment can send ripples out into the world in a very, very powerful way. So not to underestimate the fact that every... Every time I succeed in having, in managing my, my thoughts and my feelings in that way that Marianne Williamson was talking about, in, in emerging love rather than fear, every time I manage to, to overcome my fear and negativity and, and embrace love, knowing that that is the highest truth about me and about everyone actually ultimately, every time I manage that, I am changing the world. In a, in a positive way. So this question, and I'm only reading the questions, they're not my questions. So when obstacles come, how do we return to being real in a spiritual sense? And maybe what does it, what does it feel like when yeah. we become real? Because, you know, the questions are all around the authentic self. What does it feel like to be real? Yeah. And what does it feel like to have an obstacle? Um, yeah. Um, I think I can probably best answer that by, don't want to take too long with it, but with a bit of a, try and tell a, a long story shortly. Um, although I got immediate benefits from all of this stuff when I came across it 30 years and more ago, and especially in the workplace, that was where I saw immediate benefits, um, and in the family context, with my sons, things changed in very positive ways. But one of the things that was slower to overcome in myself was was um, I had a kind of dependency on my wife that was really quite deep. It wasn't just a dependent relationship. She's a very she's a very strong individual, and I feel that before all of my kind of self-empowerment moves that um, I was the weaker partner in a sense and I, I enjoyed that strength that she had. Um, she's a very strong feminist. She's not on a spiritual path but she's very tough in herself and um, so I, I enjoyed that and she would be true to herself within her own standards Whereas I always felt a bit as if I was trying to be something that I wasn't, or pretending to be something that I wasn't. And um, 
because it took me time, I, well, I don't know what the reasons were, but I've, I wondered for some time, I hinted at this earlier when I mentioned Will's book, that we had several years together as a family after I began my spiritual journey, but then um, when the, our two boys had grown up, Liz, my, Liz Hodgkinson, my ex, who's also a journalist, um, she said, I think it's time we separated, you know, because we'd married young, had a family young, etc. And um, she said she wanted to live life as a single woman because she hadn't experienced that. We'd been together some 22, 23 years at that point. And um, I didn't want that, but these, I asked the sister's advice, and they said, what does Liz want? And I explained that this was what she was after. And they said, do you love Liz? I said, yes. And they said, well, if you really love Liz, you'll want to do what she wants. Ah. <laughs> so so we, I, I couldn't argue with that, and um, we parted very amicably, but it left a real hole in my heart. It really did, because I loved family life, and, um, and I loved Liz. But more than love, there was an attachment to it. You see, one of the, it's a really sophisticated thing, but there's a real difference between love and attachment. Attachment is a neediness. Um, love only gives. Attachment hurts when the object of your attachment is lost, but love frees. And it's like those lines, there's a beautiful lines from um, William Blake, that he who bends to himself a joy doth the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. It's like if you can live lightly, enjoy life, enjoy people, enjoy situations, but, you know, when it's time for them to leave, farewell, you know. Um, if you can live like that, you live very well. It's a beautiful life. But if you're kind of needy and upset if something, you know, wants to go in a different direction, it's actually very destructive of your happiness, and it can distort your actions too. So... When this happened, even though I agreed to it because I respected the sisters a lot and their advice made sense, but I felt this hole for quite a long time. And it wasn't just it wasn't just a question of attachment for Liz, that sort of sense of a part of, you know, because my idea of love had used to be to merge myself with another and although Liz didn't do that, but I feel as if I did. And so I felt that loss. But more than that, the family man identity, you know, being a family man, that was my place in the world was to be a family man. And it felt like a failure and a loss when the family life finished. The boys were grown up anyway, but still, you know, it meant that there wasn't that family structure. And I really felt that loss for a long time. And I, when... um. Finally, finally, I did a sort of operation on myself. It was very peculiar because as long as that... What I eventually came to see was that that family man identity wasn't, wasn't something original to me, the soul. It wasn't part of the inheritance of truth that we all have as in that blueprint for our own highest, eternal and original self that, of the soul. That blueprint is utterly giving. But this was more, this family man identity was more something in the brain, you know, my conditioning. 
by my parents, by my society, by my own thinking, my own tendencies. It was a conditioning in here. And when I realized that, and that it was destructive, that I saw it as like a tumor affecting my, my happiness in a variety of ways, I literally did psychic surgery on myself. I really did. It was amazing. I'd never done anything like that before. But I felt as if I could put my hand in my head and pull this tumor out. And I really did succeed. It's like you really can change your thinking if you set your mind to it, which is another of the powerful confirmations of this new paradigm in science that says that mind is primary and the material world, including your brain, is secondary to the mind. You can change your brain. The neuroscientists know this now, too. They call it neuroplasticity. Every thought and feeling you have alters the brain. And if you make the right choices, you can alter your brain in very positive ways. This was quite a dramatic one because that had been there for so long. It's like suddenly I saw it. I really wanted it out, and I took it out. It was amazing. I was telling Linda about something, an episode with um, one of the senior teachers that I'd also had. Something had upset me that she had said. And um, I went to see her and I said, um, I said, what you said was like a dagger in my heart. And the senior teacher said, pull it out. <laughs> it's amazing, you know, and it completely diffused my anger and, and upset. And she was right, you know, you to pull it out. Don't have any more argument about it. Don't expect an apology. It happened. But don't walk around wounded. We can do that. We don't have to hurt. But you have to, these hurts persist as long as they're outside our conscious awareness. And that family man identity was kind of deep down inside my conditioning. It didn't reach my conscious awareness for a long time. Did that one answer that question? I don't know if it did. Well, they'll tell you if they, you haven't answered their questions, Neville. <laughs> but this one, I think uh, you touched on one part of this. Um, that This is a new one. So what have I done to create a negative event? What have I done to create a negative event? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't necessarily have done anything. There are things like, you, so let's say you're in an aeroplane flying to Delhi and the airplane crashes, it's a negative event, but it's not necessarily your fault. Um, So, you know, sometimes things are happening. Uh, I would say that from the deeper understanding that I'm getting now about the way this extraordinary drama, this amazing play that we're in works, I would say that something had lay behind that. I probably, because... Because nothing happens completely without a reason, I don't think. But I don't know whether you could maintain that. But um, so in in a collective sense, our collective karma is sometimes such that we are actually putting the planet under strains. For example, with the whole issue of climate change, our, our caterpillar-like behavior where we're kind of gobbling up everything that's on the planet all the fossil fuel resources and taking so much out of the earth, you know, with so many billions of us, the earth can't take that forever. And so it's kind of sending signals back to us and it pops out in different ways that are to do with our collective karma. But um, but individually, I think you can say that whenever you are actually suffering, like I was with that dagger in my heart, Although I could have blamed and was blaming this senior sister for what she said, what she was showing me was 
actually, you let that dagger go in and you can pull it out. So if I'm, if there is a negative circumstance and it's affecting me negatively, let me sort of put it that way, affecting me negatively rather than just the world in general or the planet, then definitely it means that there's a vulnerability in me whereby that negativity has, has pressed my button, so to speak, and made me upset or angry or hurt. And I can deal with that, but it takes, it takes self-examination and it takes a lot of self-respect. It takes connection to that true source because the power that flows then allows you to see clearly, oh, actually I didn't have to be so upset about that circumstance. It was just it was just that I was feeling low and I, I made a victim of myself. You know, you can understand. But this is why Raja Yoga, which which means royal union, this connect this sense of connection to that that blueprint of your truth, that is so valuable in life. The blueprint is there. You have to sort of constantly draw it into yourself in order to free yourself of the illusions created by the conditioning in here. You bypass the brain, if you like. That's what you're doing when you when you meditate in this way. Understanding that there's a lot of subconscious conditioning that's going on in your brain that will influence the way you see things. You can't act on all of that. You can't unravel all of that just like that. But what you can do is you can step aside. This is the essence of this meditation. You can step aside from all your thinking. You can use some positive thoughts to take you to a place where you connect to that realm beyond, like those near-death experience people have, and you draw on that light of love and joy, and with that light, you see the right way to, to move forward, and your your negativities are cleared. It sounds simple, but I'm, I've been at it 34 years, and, um, and now I would say I've definitely made some progress. <laughs> <laughs> That's very inspiring. <laughs> I can't say <laughs> So you've answered the question. This, this question, I like this question, but you've just answered it. How can I experience a near-death experience without near-death? You just, you, just, you just answered that. Did I? Oh, yeah, that's you did. Good. You just spoke about the light and uh, the last Yeah, thing. that's right. It is. Yes, that's true. Yes, yes, through meditation. But it also entails what the the um, spiritual university calls dying alive. You know, there are different little bits of yourself that have to die from time to time. Things like my family man identity. That was a big step forward for me. And a weird thing was that it brought my ex closer. The whole family's come closer since I lost that neediness, you know, that family man identity neediness. There's more of a flow of love again. Okay, I'm going to merge two questions in one because this is going to be the last. So um, they're both on the, from the science perspective. Uh, how can science prove the soul? This is one part. And then this question, maybe you can merge in the answer as well. Uh, can you give the process and points that you gave in your journey from science to spirituality? So can you, you gave some points about that in your talk. Okay. Um, so maybe you can connect those two together. Yeah. Um, science has had this ethic for two or three hundred years. Uh, 
growing more, more and more strongly in the last hundred years, really, that only the measurable and the repeatable is real. And this actually is a, has been a very useful approach for understanding the, the, the gross physical world, and it's given us some wonderful discoveries. But it led to the neglect of the, the, the aspects of reality, which I would say are deeper reality than things, which is the informational and consciousness-based and feeling-based um, realities of this mind-like quality that in the new way of thinking in science comes first with the material realm being second. It's like understanding the difference between um, a radio and the music that it plays and the composer of that music. The radio is a material object. Um, it attune it right and it catches the broadcast of the of the music, but then the, the, the even the broadcast music is not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is the the mind of the composer. And similarly, I find that where I'm getting to in my own journey of real authenticity is an alignment between what I've been referring to as the source, because it's kind of dogma-free, but it would, be, it would be what many would say was God, ultimately. God, you know, I used to hate the word so much because so many awful things have been done in the name of God, like enslaving people, torturing people, invading countries, all of these awful things. My God's greater than yours. All these wars, you know, ugh, that's what made me turn to science. But now I'm so happy that science is saying it doesn't know who or what God is yet, but it is pointing to the dimension of soul. Because firstly, well, there are these aspects of consciousness clearly not only being something that is produced by the, the, the brain when it's functioning normally. That is a limited consciousness. That is a filtered consciousness that lets me play my specific part accurately for what I have to do here in this material world. But repeatedly these studies, and there are some studies on the brains of drug users as well, N not regular drug users, but but they're, they're looking at the effects of psychedelic drugs, mind-expanding drugs. They find that some of them, the whole brain lights up, like LSD, the whole brain lights up, but it's a huge confusion. So sounds appear like colors. It's a very, it's a high experience, but it's, it's, it's what it is. But there are some drugs, like psilocybin, a classic, that produce this expanded awareness, like the near-death experience, where they find that actually key connector hubs in the brain shut down. So it's actually the, the consciousness is being liberated from the brain into that deeper awareness. These, these studies have formed a part of my, my journey towards understanding these things. They, the scientists who 
who are most theoretical about this, but also most convinced about the reality of of this realm of consciousness, are theoretical physicists. Um, You've probably heard of quantum mechanics. It's a branch of physics that was started 80 or 90 years ago. And um, it it came about when they discovered that at the level of the very small, the atomic and molecular and subatomic, that things don't work like they do with big objects, that um, objects only become objects if there's a mind to observe them. Before they're observed, they're described by something called the wave function, which is a mathematical term which describes a whole range of possibilities of where a particle could be but isn't until an observer comes along to see it. So the whole concept of seeing into being was very much authenticated by these discoveries in quantum theory. And I can see some of you kind of nodding off a bit here and others looking very interested. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is, it's difficult stuff. Um, but it, it's, it's another of the key stepping stones towards, towards this new paradigm. And I've got one or two quotes that I'd like you to hear at the risk of boring you a bit. But, um, you know, something like this. Uh, the, the, the father of quantum mechanics is someone called Max Planck. He was the one who really did most to bring it into being. And I um, don't know if I've got the quote here from him. But um, it was so interesting what he said. Except that I haven't got it here. <laughs> No, I have. No, I have. Um, He said that after a lifetime of studying the material world, what he'd come to understand was this. All matter, all matter, originates and exists only by virtue of a force. It's like matter is tightly packed vibrations. E equals mc squared, Einstein's famous equation that told us that about the immense energy in matter, which led to the nuclear bombs and all the rest of it. Um, All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. We must assume behind this force is the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. All matter, that's the entire universe they're talking about. And in this new paradigm, which, which totally adopts this point of view, there are scientists are saying that really it's as if this mind, it's not necessarily God's mind, you know, there's a discussion, that they're, but they're, they're reaching towards soul because they're understanding that, that as individuated conscious agents within this matrix, you know, we, we're individual conscious agents, right? You know, that's, the, that's what a soul is. You're a conscious agent, each one of you. It's lovely to look around and, you know, you, you look into the eyes of people as you're, they're meeting one another at Victoria Station. I had a little wait for the train down there and I could see people meeting up. It's lovely watching that light in the eyes, the light of recognition as people meet. You know, it's not the body. It's it's the conscious agent that meets another conscious agent. So beautiful. 
But normally we think of ourselves in such physical terms, but that conscious agent is the real, that's the essence, that's the soul. So the scientists understand that we are souls, that we're conscious agents, we form part of this matrix that, that runs this material world. Um, they don't yet know about God. Um, some of them are saying our understandings are telling us that we should put God back on the agenda. They're definitely saying that. The way I understand God from the, from the teachings of the Spirit University is that God is like a like a seed that absolutely beyond, but that contains all that is needed. And once it's sort of coming into expression, it's not God anymore. So some there was one of the near-death experiences in Pim Van Lommel's study who had gone very high, and they felt this beautiful love and joy. And they said, is this God? And the answer came into their mind, no, this is this is what happens when God breathes. <laughs> I thought it's wonderful. That's how it seems, you know, like there is there is that source, and it gives off this love and this truth and then we can breathe that into ourselves and then that's what makes us become authentic and real oh, enough perfect <laughs> what a perfect oh that's really perfect <laughs> so now you can uh, lead us into a near-death experience without dying you can lead us into having an experience of the breath of god <laughs> Just for the last few minutes. Okay. So that would be really lovely. Mm. So this is not the time to leave. <laughs> because this is the this is the this is the taking the theory into experience. Mm. So thank you, Neville. I'd be good to just because he he did do well. <laughs> Thanks to you for being here. It's a it's a huge pleasure to share these things actually. Although uh, I am still a bit cognitive in my nature. You know, I was one of these things in, um, well, it was a retreat in um, Kuala Lumpur. And um, there was an icebreaker at the start of it. And the sister who was organizing it had us in little groups. And we had to talk among each other for a few minutes and then produce a painting that symbolized the feeling of our group. And... Um, I was in this group, um, we were talking away, and um, nearly all the time for the icebreaker had gone, and um, we hadn't got anything on our piece of paper, and others had got these eagles and, you know, butterflies and all these wonderful symbols, and we hadn't got anything. But um, luckily there was this rather sophisticated lady doctor in our group, and when the facilitator came round and said, it's about to finish, you haven't done anything. She said, but we're cognitive. <laughs> you know, cognitive means that, like, some people love to understand and others are more inclined to experience. And although for a long time my way into restoring some of this truth in myself was through experience more recently as you gather from my quotes of some of this science it's become more cognitive you know the to get the understanding for me that's given extra power to it but now i i hope there'll be a combination of both so when we meditate just sit comfortably they like to take a deep abdominal breath it's very relaxing
and then you can sort of um, get a touch of the the dying alive. You can begin by making some choices about the kind of thoughts that you're going to choose to have. Thoughts in the Marianne Williamson sense of you can choose to understand that actually I am love. That is a reality. The toughness of life in a body-conscious, materialistic world may have hidden that reality from me from time to time, but now it's my job to re-emerge it. I'm a loving being. I am a soul that is an energy of consciousness that's distinct from matter. present in this brain and body. But I'm not the brain. And that's very good news for me. Because there's so much conditioning in my subconscious causing likes and dislikes good and bad behaviours all mixed in there in the conditioning in the brain when I lost sight of the reality of my being this conscious agent. It was as if the brain was running me. Like wild horses with no one to hold the reins. Not surprisingly, Every now and then, my thoughts would go racing into bramble bushes and I'd break a leg, I'd hurt. So maybe I'd become afraid and not embrace life as fully as my potential would allow. Now, 
as the understanding returns who I really am this loving peaceful soul as I take my awareness into that consciousness the mind becomes peaceful it loses its restlessness or depression it's as if the battery of that well-being is charged I am the peaceful and loving soul it's me the soul is choosing to experience this positive reality. And the mind receives the benefit. And when I bring that positivity into my actions, brain changes in line with that too and becomes more positive. I am love. I am joy. other thoughts pop up from the brain, some questions or worries, I, the soul, say to the brain, don't worry, leave that on one side, we'll sort that later, I want you now to experience the authentic, real self.
when you allow yourself to come into that frame of mind of knowing yourself as love idea or a concept. Becomes a truth. You know that there is that light, like a spiritual sun that never stops shining. Pushing aside the clouds that are in your brain so as to bathe in the light of that sun, like those people who went beyond the body in the near death experience. That light is there, but you have to become. strength from it. It is the light of love from that spiritual sun. It's deeply nourishing. As you learn to make this connection, you can become more and more skillful at reconnecting in everyday life so that the battery remains constantly well charged. 
simple. Very beautiful. Very real. <laughs>